Last time on The Feud. There's a sort of train that left the station and it eventually derailed. I didn't refuse the help. It was just the help that was being offered was so remote. It was simply useless. A little sort of event in his back garden in the deanery. It felt like, at last, the nightmare is over. Job descriptions. They regarded that as a sort of modern intrusion. Meetings of people who have been censors do take place. The campaign by Dr. Percy and his supporters has been knitted into a narrative that has been at best distorted and one-sided, and at worst, untrue. But a bit like a mafia, behind the scenes, this group are running quite a lot of things. Okay, I want to tell you a story about Martin Percy, about something that happened long before he arrived at Christchurch. The first time I actually spoke to Martin was 17 years ago. A handful of us journalists had been given the job of interviewing people who had been included for the first time in a new edition of Who's Who, which is a kind of A to Z of Britain's most influential people. And I was assigned Martin, who had just become principal of a training college for priests. And when years later the feud was kicking off and Martin's name started to appear in the press, I realised I knew him, or at least I'd spent some time on the phone with him. And immediately I remembered something he'd told me. It was about what had happened to him in the 80s, back when he was a young man working in publishing well before he joined the church. And what stuck with me was this glimpse it offered into Martin's resilience. It's a strange experience. I have very rarely talked about it, but um, in June 1986, one of the things I used to do with this publisher I was working with, I'd say probably about four times a year, go out on the road with the sales reps, who in, in those days, of course, drove around and personally called on shops to sell the books. I remember it was the the day after Gary Lineker had scored a hat-trick for England in the World Cup. Winarczyk has misjudged it and Lineker has a hat-trick! Gary Lineker has etched his trademark on the 1986 World Cup finals. And I'd kind of woken up that morning and had this extraordinary, I think you'd have to call it a sixth sense, not to drive, a foreboding. And I just shook it off really, got in the car. And half an hour later, we were driving down a dual carriageway and this cyclist pulled out. You could see him on the crest of a hill. And I braked really hard. We were doing, I think, probably just under 60 miles an hour. And as it turned out, the skid marks were in the end 300 yards long. Absolutely dead straight. So it was you know, we didn't flip the car, didn't deviate, but the cyclist just never saw us and we hit a considerable impact. He came through the windscreen on my side of the car and I'm killed instantly. First on the scene actually was a local Bobby who obviously knew the deceased and that was just tragic because I just had to say, look, you know, I, I, I didn't drink and uh, but there was just nothing I could do. Just a completely freak accident. Yeah, just completely, absolutely. That so took quite a long time to, to get over, really. 
did it have any bearing on your decision to leave publishing and become a priest? Um, no, not not directly. I think what it did do was make me wonder how are we connected to people. I think one of the triggers in this was was wondering in a sort of rather strange existential way, how would I know if I'd ever killed somebody I was related to because I was adopted? I didn't do anything about that. And in fact, I didn't do anything about that until married and looking for children. But the thought was it could have been your brother. It could be a brother or a cousin or yes, anything. And you, you don't know. And actually, of course, you know, there is a there's an extraordinary story by a writer called Max Frisch, Homo Faber. It's a novel, but where something terribly dark and tragic happens and the person who survives has to discover to his horror that the person he's been with, he was related to all along. You're listening to The Feud, a podcast brought to you by subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Andrew Billen. This is part three, Mystery in the Cathedral. Up to now, I've really been following Martin's journey. In this episode, I'm going to do something a little different. You're going to hear how Christchurch responded to claims from two different women. The second of these reports involves Martin. But let's start with the first. Baby, hi! Hey. Long time no see. Yeah, see you. Well, of months. <laughs> Did you find your party that day? Phoebe Hennell, a Christchurch student, has popped round to my home in Oxford. When we last talked, she'd been on her way to a picnic. I was walking around yesterday, it's absolutely idyllic, and all the students are just hanging around. Now it was another glorious day, practically at the end of the academic year. Yeah. Is this your final week in Oxford then? My final week, yeah. Gosh, very sad. But despite this enchanting English summer morning, Phoebe had a serious story to tell me. During her time at Christchurch, Phoebe says she was the victim of an attempted sexual assault by another student. He was very keen to get me back to my bedroom. I was terrified. Yeah, no, I was terrified. I knew something was wrong. She's waived her right to anonymity to speak about this. I kind of just put it to the back of my mind. I then just sat on it. For legal reasons, we're not going to report the details of what she claims happened. But what I'm really interested in is what happened subsequently. She was about to graduate from Christchurch with a 2-1 in philosophy and modern Greek. Like a lot of students, she was looking forward to celebrating by going to a college ball. Oxford balls are black tie affairs and turn a college into something between a club and a fun fair. I remember going to one when I was an undergraduate. It lasted all night, and I'd always claim that it was more fun than decadent. It's meant to be like the, one of the biggest events in the Oxford University calendar. Lots of students bought tickets, and then it got postponed a couple of years, so it was a big event, lots of students coming back for it. Phoebe had a ticket, 
but she also had a knot in her stomach. She was worried the man who she says had attempted to assault her some time before might also be going to the ball. In fact, she had been worrying for a while. Last year, in December, she talked to the chaplain, who has a pastoral role at the college. Phoebe was advised to report the incident to the police. A few days later, on Christmas Eve, Phoebe then sent an email to Christchurch's censors. Remember, these are the dons who deal with student welfare. And here's an extract from that email. 24th of December, 2021. Subjects, banned from college request. Dear censors, I am writing to request that... Phoebe hit send. And then, nothing. In fact, Phoebe never got a response. Three months later, she emailed again. 1st of April, 2022. Hello, following up on this email, is there any support the college offers in cases like this? Phoebe. Again, nothing. Part of me felt like I actually wasn't surprised that they were ignoring me. Um, And I was also worried because the ball was approaching. So I was worried that there wouldn't be enough time to, to ban him. Phoebe decided to go back to the chaplain with her concerns. A few weeks later, on the 29th of April this year, Phoebe sent yet another email to the censors, and this time she included in the chaplain. 29th of April, 2022. I tried to alert this to the censors' office as we discussed, but no response. I just hope he won't be at the ball, Phoebe. Finally, Phoebe got a response. And after some back and forth, a meeting was set up with the chaplain and the junior censor, Kevin McGurty. So they agreed to a preliminary chat. On the 9th of May, more than four months after she first emailed asking for the man in question to be banned from the ball, Phoebe finally met with the Christchurch officials who handle student welfare. I asked Christchurch why it had taken so long. They didn't respond to the point, but they did say... Guidance was offered, including signposting to the police and the counselling service. But there was something else. Phoebe was somewhat bemused that the junior censor, Kevin McGurty, was in the meeting at all. I was surprised to see um, the junior censor there... To my understanding, he had actually stepped down from safeguarding duties following liking some content on Twitter. When he arrived, you know, I shook his hand and said, welcome back to safeguarding. And he looked a bit embarrassed. Um, a bit, he got a bit flustered, actually, for the rest of the meeting. A month earlier, a notice had gone out to all the students at Christchurch that Kevin, for the time being, was stepping back from safeguarding duties after his Twitter account had liked some erotic images. I've asked Kevin McGurty why he was there and whether he thought it was appropriate. Christchurch replied on his behalf. Professor McGurty is junior censor and part of his role is to deal with any individuals being barred from college or college-related events. It was in this capacity that he met the student along with the welfare coordinator. So, how did the meeting go? Well... It was left with the censors, and Phoebe went back to studying for her final exams. That whole ordeal of um, chasing them up for answers, it, I'd say it took out a week of my, of my exam preparation from stress. 
12 days after the meeting, it still wasn't resolved. 21st of May. Hello. I'm putting off ordering my ball gown until I hear any update, but it will need to arrive in time and to allow for returning and ordering another if it doesn't fit, etc. When can I expect to know? Phoebe. In the end, the man did not attend the ball, and Phoebe did. The college told me... It's not appropriate for Christchurch to comment on confidential student welfare matters. After a number of emails and meetings, the situation was resolved to the student's satisfaction. I had mixed feelings because, on one hand, I had got the outcome I wanted, but the great you know, length of time it took to get that outcome, I was very unhappy with. Now I want to move on to a story of another woman at Christchurch. And this time the story does involve Martin and the feud that has engulfed my old college. I ended the last episode in autumn 2019. Martin had been vindicated by the Smith Tribunal. However, he was still battling with Christchurch because he had made a claim to an employment tribunal. And when Martin returned to his duties as dean... In the autumn of 2019, there was an embarrassing clash over whether or not he could chair one of the meetings. And that brings us to 2020, when the pandemic would knock us all off our feet. Good evening. The latest UK case of coronavirus is the first to be contracted within the country rather than abroad. Summer exams are also off. Nurseries, colleges and universities also being asked to close. Boris Johnson has tonight placed the UK on lockdown to tackle the coronavirus. It was a very different Britain that woke up this morning. Normally busy roads were hushed as most people acted on the government's new measures. By now, members of the governing body were starting to openly question Martin's mental health. And we'll return to that in the next episode. But the months were going by and relations between Christchurch and its dean were just not getting any better. Then, in October 2020, something happened. The whole thing was weird and creepy. He assaulted me while wearing a collar in a cathedral. Those are the words of Alana Jern. She's agreed to waive her right to anonymity, but didn't want to be interviewed for this podcast. So her words from an interview with The Telegraph are being spoken by a producer. When the alleged incident took place, Alana was in her late 20s. Having moved from New Zealand, she was living in Oxford and had a role at Christchurch Cathedral. She got to know Martin and his wife and counted herself as probably quote, unquote, on his side in this dispute. She'd even house sat for them at the deanery. That Sunday, following a service, Alana went into the sacristy, the room used for keeping robes and other paraphernalia. Afterwards, she made an allegation against Martin that he denies to this day. I heard steps, so I turned around. It was Martin, she says. They were the only people in the room. I was surprised to see him there, as we were having to follow all the social distancing rules and clergy were not allowed in the sacristy, as it is quite small. He started off by saying, Have you done something different to your hair today? It's looking glorious. 
I just said that I'd brushed it and tried to laugh it off. Then he said that he'd been watching me throughout the service and could not take his eyes off me. He said the sunlight had been catching on my hair and that he wanted to reach out and stroke it. He was very close to me at this point. I remember thinking, I hope I don't give him COVID as it was the start of Freshers' Week and I'd been working with students all weekend. Then he said, oh, I'm just going to have to and reached out his hand and stroked my hair for about 10 seconds. I just froze and tried to diffuse the situation by not reacting. Alana then says that as Martin was leaving, he turned to her. He said, so how old are you now then? 28. He said, only 30 years between us then. I was like, there's no other implication to take from that. After the service, Alana went to lunch with friends, including the college chaplain. One of them remarked on her hair. Alana said they would not believe who else had just said that, and she recounted the whole incident. There was a discussion. After thinking it over during the following week, she reported it to the cathedral and then made an official complaint against Martin. I'm David Aronovich, one of the hosts of the Stories of Our Times podcast. Every Monday to Friday, I sit down with one of the excellent journalists from the Times and the Sunday Times to go over one story in depth. Some of these are exclusive investigations. Some of them are analyses, trying to understand the goings-ons at Westminster. Sometimes it's hearing from the very top foreign correspondents from around the world. And when it comes to sport, we go beyond the pitch to get to grips with what's really going on. So subscribe to the half-hourly show that drops into your podcast feed every morning. Just search for Stories of Our Times wherever you get your podcasts. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. So, in October 2020, Martin was suspended again 
this time for allegedly stroking this woman's hair in the cathedral sacristy. But Martin remembers the incident completely differently. The allegation was that I had said to this woman, I couldn't take my eyes off you during the service. Well, in actual fact, I was robed, I was sitting next to my wife, and I have in fact got pretty terrible eyesight. I have keratoconus, so I can't actually pick out a figure from, I would say, 20 feet away. I wouldn't be able to tell whether it was male or female. I didn't have my hard gas permeable contact lenses in that day because I had a, a, a serious eye infection in the left eye, so I was on eye drops. I really couldn't see what was going on. I, I wasn't reading anything either that day. I just sat there looking sort of dignified like a dean. I couldn't possibly see anybody, let alone at the back of a cathedral. Uh, nor could I see this individual who in any case would have been operating behind my back through a, a stone wall uh, out of sight of me. So the whole thing seemed completely bizarre. And even if I had good eyesight, you still wouldn't be able to see them. But what about after the service? That was when Alana alleges he stroked her hair. What I said was that I was, I'd made a remark about the length of hair, to which the reply was, oh, it's all going to be cut off. And I asked why and was informed that this would be a donation to a charity for children in order to make wigs. And I said that was very moving. And I made a, a joke about my hair, which is grey and extremely short, and that nobody would want my hair at my age. I mean, that was it. She says you actually stroked her hair for 10 seconds. Did you touch her hair? No. At all? Not at all. No reason to. I was concentrating on putting eye drops in, which is a two-handed job. <laughs> How long were you in that space with her? Oh, I don't know. I mean, less than a minute. It's quite a big space. I mean, it is the height of a double-decker bus. It's the width of one. It's a large space. But while Martin categorically denies touching Alana's hair, could he have offended her in some other way? I was quite prepared to apologise to this individual if there was anything I had said, which of course would be unintended, that had caused her any upset or distress. But of course it was all taken out of her hands, heavily weaponized, and then talked up as a full-blown sexual assault. Does he honestly think that I would have allowed anyone to rewrite my experience and talk it up? It was completely shattering to see so many people support him without knowing all of the facts. So let me walk you through what happened next. Alana lodged a complaint of sexual harassment and Christchurch reacted promptly. Martin was suspended. A former police officer and safeguarding consultant was brought in to investigate. She found, on the balance of probabilities, that it was more likely than not that the incident had occurred. The police also looked into the allegation as a sexual assault and took DNA samples from Alana and Martin. But without sufficient evidence, it went no further. Also, a formal complaint of serious misconduct was referred to the Church of England. The preliminary investigation in that Church of England inquiry by a senior judge found both Alana and Martin were credible witnesses but said the conduct as a whole was not overtly sexual and decided not to refer it to a disciplinary process. But Martin would again face an internal Christchurch tribunal, which the college says 
was the only procedure to examine a credible accusation. However, Martin saw the multiple inquiries as part of the ongoing vendetta. Nobody would ever know what went on. So you could have been vindicated again and again and again. And every time Christchurch would have said, oh, well, he's not really vindicated. I mean, he, he's lucky. He kind of got off, but um, he, he did it really. Martin was off sick for half a year. And in the end, this tribunal would never take place. But this alleged incident, more than anything, has continued to divide opinion about the feud. Supporters of Martin, such as Angela Tilby, say it was blown out of proportion. I do think that that some people hope that this will be a Me Too moment, that this will be the moment when sort of 20 undergraduate turn up and say, yes, Me Too, it happened to me, he did it to me. And of course, not a single person did. For the students, it was less clear-cut. I would say this was the beginning of the tides turning to being a bit more sceptical. Before this incident happened, people were far more sympathetic to the Dean and they thought this was all just a kind of power struggle. People then started to be like, actually, you know, that does sound a bit creepy. But then some of us thought this hair accusation was being utilised as a way to undercut the Dean... In the end, both Alana and Martin would reach financial settlements with Christchurch. But remember, I've just looked at two experiences of women at Christchurch. Whatever the truth of the allegations, did the college pursue Alana's complaint so exhaustively and so speedily because it was against Martin? After all, it took the census much longer, months in fact, to respond to Phoebe's request to get a man banned from a college ball. We take all allegations seriously, and each is necessarily considered on a case-by-case basis in accordance with our own policies and UK law. The situation regarding Ms Jeanne was entirely different. Ms Jeanne, who made a specific allegation of sexual harassment, was an employee. The alleged incident took place in Christchurch Cathedral, and Martin Percy was the head of house and had oversight of safeguarding. But I think this moment did mark a shift in how some observers of the feud saw Martin. It challenged his credibility and threatened to rob him of the high moral ground that in some eyes he'd occupied. And it created a toxic atmosphere which would lead to something darker for Alana and for Martin. I'll tell you about that later. By the following summer, there's still no end to all this, and the college thinks it has found a new way to get rid of its turbulent priest, this time questioning Martin's state of mind. And Martin himself seemed to be cracking. There's this particular article that we all found extremely problematic. No, I'm not comparing the victims of abuse and false accusation to Holocaust victims and survivors. I mean, he had at least one breakdown during the course of this. That's all next time on The Feud. You've been listening to part three of The Feud. It's reported and presented by me, Andrew Billam. It's brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. The series is produced by Will Rowe and Brenna Dowdorf. 
Production assistance and fact-checking is by Constance Kampfner. The executive producer is Lynn Jones. And the original music and sound design is by Tom Birchall. <laughs>